Please open your Bibles this afternoon to Zechariah chapter 3. We're going to look at this chapter together in connection with Lord's Day 23 of the Hunterberg Catechism, Zechariah 3, page 1009 in the Trinity Bibles, 1009. Book of Zechariah has seven night visions. Look at the very center of those visions, the fourth vision this afternoon. Zechariah chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, this is God's holy word. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that day declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Thus far, the reading of God's own word may bless it to us as we meditate upon it this afternoon. Please with me also in the Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 23. Lord's Day 23, page 224 in the Forms and Prayers books, 224 in the Forms and Prayers books. 881, I believe, in the Trinity Psalter hymnal. Because this is our confession, we make it together reading the questions and answers responsively. Lord's Day 23 comes to us right after Lord's Day 22 and all the Lord's Days on the Apostles' Creed. We've come to the end of the Apostles' Creed. And now question 59 asks us the question, but how does it help you now to believe all this? That I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting. Question 60. And how are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of men
finally, question 61. Why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith. For only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are my righteousness before God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith. This is indeed our confession. Dearly beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I address you with words like that because of what we confess here in Lord's Day 23 of our Catechism. I address you with those words, beloved congregation of Christ, because although you are sinners, you are dearly loved by a Savior who for your sake laid down his life, and who for your sake was raised up from the dead. I address you with words like that because even though you are unworthy, Christ has made you worthy. Without any merit of your own, out of sheer grace, God has seen to it that your sins are atoned for. You've been justified. You are right in God's sight. I address you as a dearly loved congregation of Christ because... At the end of the day, boys and girls, our catechism and the whole message of the gospel is contained in but one word. It's right in the middle of question answer 60. I wish it were bold, capitalized, and italicized. You see what word it is? Nevertheless. Nevertheless, this afternoon, we're going to camp out in that word. Nevertheless. We're going to, to see what exactly lies in its background as well as what lies in its foreground. We're going to see that word illustrate here in Zechariah chapter 3 and substantiate throughout the rest of Scripture. Nevertheless, that's the gospel. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commands and never having kept any of them, even though my conscience accuses me of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, God grants and credits to me the perfect Satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. From even though to nevertheless, that's the journey of the gospel. That's the gospel put simply, nevertheless. By true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, sinners like you and me who deserve the wrath of God. Sinners like you and me who deserve to be forever banished from the presence of God. By true faith in Christ, you and I are made perfectly righteous before God. And so if you miss this, people of God, you miss everything. Of this doctrine, Calvin said, this doctrine, the doctrine of nevertheless, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the main hinge on which the entirety of our religion unfolds. P.Y.D. Young spoke of this doctrine, nevertheless, in the same way. He said, here we are plunged into the very heart of the gospel. Its message speaks directly about the relationship between God and man. It speaks a message to man the sinner about Christ the Savior. It speaks a message about the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel. No one says P.Y.D. Young can speak of a justifying God without touching on all the major themes of faith. For every strain of the Christian message converges on the question, how shall man be justified before God? And so the confession before us this afternoon is a relevant confession. It is a relevant confession. If you are young or old, immature or mature, this confession is relevant to each and every one of us. 
With increasing measure, each one of us must learn to love and to live. This confession, Lord's Day 23, is that whenever Satan tempts us to despair and, and tells of all the guilt within, we learn more and more upward to look, to see Christ there, who made an end of all my sin. Here in Lord's Day 23, you and I are taken into the courtroom and we appear before the tribunal of God, standing side by side with Joshua the high priest, as it were. Here we're brought into the courtroom where there is a judge and there is an accuser. There's an accuser who is prosecuting his case. Here in this Lord's Day, we hear the gavel swinging down with divine authority, having eternal consequences. In this Lord's Day, we hear the indictment. We hear the charges that are laid against, against us. But here in this Lord's Day, we also hear the verdict. Nevertheless, for in this courtroom, there is also a defense attorney who, who does not deal with us according to our sins. And so in this same Lord's Day, we are ushered out of the courtroom and we're brought into the living room into the living room of intimate fellowship with the very one whom we offended and sinned against. This is what justification is all about. Out of the courtroom, into the living room. And that's what this table is all about this afternoon as well. That we come as those who are in the living room of God himself. Over the course of 17 Lord's Days, the Cagsman has and taking its readers through each article of the Apostles' Creed. And, and it's also the authors, Ursinus and Levianus, have anticipated the question that, that would come to us. But, but how does it help you to believe all this? What, what's the point? Are all these things really so necessary? All these big theological words, all these complicated phrases about Jesus being born of a woman, conceived of the Spirit, and, and all these things. Is there really anything in these things for me? What's the point? How does, it, how does it help you to believe all this? To that question, the catechism answers us straight. He says, in Christ I am righteous before God. and am an heir to everlasting life. That's the point. That's what good it does you to believe all this. It all boils down to helping us See more clearly how by faith in Christ, you and I are truly righteous, holy, justified before God. And so we have every reason to rejoice. Of course, for many people in the world, the answer that the catechism gives us is far from satisfying. For many people in the world, the answer that our catechism gives us is, isn't tangible enough. It's not practical enough. But for those who know their sin. For those who know that they deserve the wrath of God against sin. For those who know that they are unworthy. Then this answer is the most relevant answer in all the world. We need to rejoice in this glorious confession this afternoon, congregation. We need to take pause and, and give thanks to the Lord that when Christ returned to heaven, he didn't leave us as orphans to, to figure out the faith on us, though we were coming to the Bible for the first time each Sunday. But he sent his spirit into the world to guide his church in all truth and to preserve the, church, the truth of the gospel through synods and councils, through 
reformers and confessions like the catechism we read this afternoon. The great reformer Martin Luther, you see, had come to understand very well the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, as is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. They have together become worthless. No one is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues only to deceive. Venom is spilling out of their lips. Their mouths are full of curses. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And this was Martin Luther's burden. Before the Reformation, Martin Luther tried to be good. He sought to be holy and devout and righteous. Here's the thing, what he soon came to discover was that he was never good enough. Here was Martin Luther, the devout Augustine monk, trying to, to white-knuckle his way into the kingdom, trying to repent enough and worthy himself up enough to finally be worthy of the king. But it was a constant battle of one step forward and a hundred steps back. Then he came upon the life-changing church, reforming discovery. The just, the righteous, shall live by faith. And so he rediscovered the hope, the comfort of the gospel, that, that Christian comfort does not consist in our meriting ourselves into the kingdom of heaven. That it doesn't consist of our making ourselves worthy enough to, to stand before the tribunal of God. Rather, the hope of the gospel consists simply in this, believing the gospel, accepting God's gifts with a believing heart. It consists in simply believing what Paul has said in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so as P.Y.D. Young said in this confession, we are plunged into the very heart of the gospel. And so we need to rejoice in this glorious confession. Christ would have us to rejoice with great joy when we consider the wonder of nevertheless. And so having asked the question, how does it help you to believe all this? By answering, in Christ I am right with God and heir to everlasting life. The Catechism now asks the question, and, and how exactly is that so? How, how are you righteous before God? And the Catechism simply reaffirms, we've already confessed in Lord's Day 7, that it's only by true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then answer 60 takes us back to Lord's Day 2 through 4, back to our misery. Takes us back in time to that sentencing phase in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. And our confession begins with a humble, self-denigrating confession of guilt, even though my conscience accuses me of grievously sinning against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, even though my conscience accuses me of still being inclined toward all evil. Nevertheless, God grants to me the perfect satisfaction and righteousness and holiness of Christ. Yes, we rejoice this afternoon in this our glorious confession, and yet all of us know what it is to be wracked with a guilty conscience. In our sin, we have all done that which, that which God has forbidden, and we have all failed to do that which God has commanded. 
And so we know the reality of our guilt that in ourselves we have no right to stand before the throne of God. No right to stand in the joy of his presence. And Zechariah knew that too. That's what he saw in this night vision. Verse 1, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Verse 3, for Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. Zechariah's vision takes him to the scene of a courtroom where Joshua is standing on trial. And this Joshua, boys and girls, is not the same Joshua from the walls of Jericho. This is Joshua, the high priest, serving in Israel after the exile, after the people of Israel have returned back home from Babylon. But here's the thing, at the time when Zechariah and Joshua, the high priest, are ministering to the people of Israel, things are, are not at all as they should be. They are surrounded by the ruins of a city that was ransacked by the Babylonians. The temple has been torn down. There are no walls to protect them. They are in a state of shame and nakedness before a laughing world. And according to the book of Nehemiah, they are entirely overwhelmed by the rubble. The rubble of their sin, the ruin that their sin has brought into their lives. And more than that, they're keenly aware of the fact that the reason for all this rubble, the reason for all these ruins is in fact due to their own sin because in years past they would not heed the voice of the Lord. The weight of their shame is far too heavy for them to lift off their own shoulders. There is so much rubble. And so if there were ever a time for a discouraging word from the adversary, from the chief enemy of their souls, that time was now. And so we read of Satan standing at Joshua's right hand to accuse him. And while no words of that accusation are recorded here, it's clear from our passage that the accusation is indeed, in the first place, personal. Satan is there to accuse Joshua the high priest, a leader, a, a representative of Israel. And Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord clothed in filthy garments. To translate verse 3 more literally, Joshua is standing before the Holy One with garments that are covered in excrement. And because Satan knows that there is no place whatsoever in the place of God for anything unclean or ceremonial unclean, it would seem as though Satan has sufficient grounds to prosecute his case. And yet by standing ready to accuse Joshua the high priest, Satan is also standing ready to accuse those whom Joshua represents. He stands ready to accuse the people of Israel. He stands ready to accuse you and me. He is eager to highlight before the Lord just how unworthy we are, just how it is that we have indeed grievously sinned against all God's commandments, just how it is that we've never kept any of them. To, to show the Lord, see, see their inclinations, how they are inclined toward all evil. Satan's name literally means adversary or accuser, and that's a fitting name, isn't it? Because isn't this what Satan, the accuser, the great deceiver, often does? Just before we give in to sin, he's the one whispering in our ears, it'll be of little consequence, it's all right. Nothing bad's going to happen. You deserve this. Then after we fall into that sin, he is the same one pointing his finger, gotcha. 
And he's the same one saying that the same sin that you just fell into is now the same sin that, that makes you eternally unworthy to stand before the presence of God. And the truth hurts, doesn't it? Because it's a fair accusation, isn't it? Isn't that we confess every time we bring our babies forward to be baptized, that they are conceived and born in sin, that as the form of baptism says, that they are subject to all the misery that sin brings, even the condemnation of God? In other words, we come confessing that they're filthy, they need to be washed. The accusation is fair. But here's the thing, Zechariah shows us that our God is a God of grace. Our God is a God who, who silences the accuser as well as the accusation. And we take comfort this morning knowing that Satan no longer has the same access that he used to have. When, when Jesus came down from heaven, he saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. And we read in Revelation 12 that, that the accuser of our brothers has finally been silenced. God silences the accuser. Listen to how he does it. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this the brand that I have plucked from the fire? And so we notice how the Lord does not silence the accuser on the basis of who we are. He doesn't silence the accused on the basis of what we have done. But rather he silences the accused on the basis of who he is. On the basis of what he has done. You see, it was according to the riches of his grace, according to his own sovereign choice. That just before Josh, when all of Israel were about to be consumed by the fire, what did God do? God plucked them out of the fire. And rescued from being consumed. At the end of the day, you see Satan stands ready to accuse the Lord himself. Really, Lord? You're going to use this guy? You're going to use these people? You're going to let them stand in your presence? Just look at his clothes. And so the Lord speaks with strong language, doesn't he? The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. In other words, he says, you shut your filthy mouth. Who do you think you are? And then notice what God does next. He doesn't make an assertion. He doesn't make a statement about Joshua or Jerusalem. Rather, he asks Satan the question so as to make him self-admit it. Is not this the brand that I have plucked from the fire? Say it. Say it. And if Satan were granted the words to speak, he'd have only one thing to say. Yes, Lord. These are the ones... You pluck from the fire? Yes, Lord. You love them. Yes, Lord, you, you, you can take defiled things and make them clean. You can take broken things and make them beautiful. Yes, 
Lord, these, these are the ones you pluck from the fire. And to that the Lord says, exactly. Exactly. And so the apostle says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Who, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who? And of course we know the answer. No one. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, how does the rest of the line go? Upward I look to see Christ there, who made an end of all my sin. And that's how we can also sing that great song of the Reformation, the Prince of Darkness Grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Even though my conscience accuses me, and my conscience does do that. My conscience accuses me all the time. And, I, and I'd imagine that your consciences do that too. Because we've all done shameful things, haven't we? We've all fallen into sins that we look back and we don't even understand how we got there. We all have sins that haunt us with a sense of guilt that we can't get rid of on our own. And we all know what it is to be racked with a guilty conscience. And yet, what does the gospel say? Nevertheless. Nevertheless, God is able to do what you are not able to do. God is able to cleanse us of our Sinful past, no matter how soiled those pasts may be. And he's able to replace our filthy garments with robes of righteousness. And so none of you, no matter how great your sins are, no matter how soiled your past may be, none of you are beyond the reach of God's redeeming grace to, to take you and to bring you back to himself, to cleanse you. This is the gospel promise. This is the believer's confession. By true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, even I, even you, are righteous before God and are heirs to everlasting life. There you stood in the courtroom, standing right next to Joshua the high priest, as it were, wearing the filthy garments of your sin. There you stood, disobedient, unrighteous, unholy, unworthy. And down swung the gavel. Not guilty. Not guilty. And not only that, not only have you been declared not guilty, but you've also been declared perfectly righteous. God should mark our sins, then who of us could stand? 
grace and mercy dwell at his right hand. Even though my conscience accuses me of of having broken all God's commands, of never having kept any of them. Even though my conscience accuses me and says, you're still inclined toward all evil. Nevertheless, without any merit of my own, of sheer grace, what does God do? He grants and credits to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Just as if we had never sinned nor been sinners, as if we ourselves had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. Our consciences accuse us. Yet the point that our catechism makes is that at the end of the day, it's a false accusation. Because our conscience says, guilty, guilty, guilty. Our conscience says, you dare not come to the table. You're unworthy. But God says not guilty. God says worthy. God says righteous. And we need to believe that this afternoon, that what God says of us is far truer of us than how we or anyone else could ever conceive of us. God says not guilty. Now Joshua was staying for the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, he said to Joshua, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And so Joshua is given new garments. He is given robes of righteousness. He is given a gracious covering for his shame. He receives the robes of Christ's righteousness to to cover all his sins, to cover all his failings, all his shortcomings. And he is fully vindicated, fully vindicated before his accuser. And so it is for all of you in the Lord Jesus Christ. If your faith is in him, you can be sure that there is indeed a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and Sinners plunged beneath that flood lose what? One guilty stain? Some guilty stains? No, all. They're guilty stains. And so this is the word of gospel that I preach to you. These aren't my words. They're Christ's words. The pre-incarnate Christ is the angel of the Lord here, standing in Zechariah chapter 3. It's Christ who says to Joshua, it's Christ who says to you and to me, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I have clothed you with pure garments. Those are his words, not mine. You're justified. Here and now, even though your consciences accuse you, nevertheless, you are righteous before God and dearly loved, as if you had never sinned or been a sinner. And you're not just clean. You're not just naked as Adam and Eve were in the garden. Not just innocent. But more than that, you are robed in righteousness, as if you had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for you. 
This is how God sees us this afternoon. As those who are robed in the righteousness of Christ. And so Zechariah said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with the garments. And the angel of the Lord, Christ, was standing by. The turban, you see, was like a crown. It was like a, a headdress that had connotations of royalty that would be placed on the priest's head. And, and we know from Exodus 28 that this royal headdress was made of, of fine linen, that with this headdress was a golden medallion. And inscribed in that medallion was, Holy unto the Lord. And Zacharias says, Put that turban on his head. Holy unto God. And so that's what's happened. The crown is placed back on his head and he is reinstated, rededicated to that office of the Lord. And so it is for us also this afternoon that those crowns with which God made us before the fall, those crowns that, that we threw to the dirt in our sins, Christ places back on our heads. And he restores that threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. And in this way, Joshua is equipped with all that he needs, not only to, to serve the Lord, but also to stand forever in the presence of the Lord. And so Joshua is brought out of the courtroom, as it were, and he is brought into the living room having received a gracious covering from, from head to toe, he no longer has any fear ever again to, to appear before the Holy One. And that's what justification is all about. That's what Lord's Day 23 is all about. Here in Lord's Day 23, we find the answer to the prayer that, that we sang just before the sermon. Show me your mercy true, your servant strength anew, deliverance send. To me your goodness show, your comfort, Lord, bestow. Let those who hate me know that you are my friend. In the Lord Jesus Christ, you are no longer enemies of God, but you're his friends. You're in the living room. The gavel is already swung down. The verdict has been declared not guilty, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly obedient. Holy unto the Lord, the crown sits upon your heads. And so we not ever fear the judge again. We find out in greater detail why that is in the remaining verses of Zechariah 3. God has provided a righteous branch. What does he say in verse 9? He says, God will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day, and, and we know what day that is. That's, that's Good Friday. As Christ hangs on the cross, God removes the iniquity of the land as the righteous branch is thrown into the fire. And that's the gospel promise that in him, our faith in him triumphs over all our failures. In Christ, you are righteous before God and you are heirs to life everlasting. What kindness.
what grace that that any merit of our own God provides for us that we could never have provided for ourselves. And in this way, in this confidence, we partake of the table. God provides for us. We cannot otherwise provide for ourselves. And the last question of this Lord's Day is sure to keep us anchored in that provision, lest we somehow begin to think that, that Christ brings them. But we have to keep ourselves in that That, of course, was the error of the Roman church. Yeah, Christ brings you in. It's by grace. But you have to keep yourself in. You have to worthy yourselves up enough. You have to repent up enough so you're worthy before the king. And the catechism says no. Why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith. Not because my faith is so valuable. Not because I made myself so worthy by believing. For only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness and holiness are my righteousness before God. And they are that. Mine. My satisfaction, my right, and my holiness. And we receive this righteousness and make it our own by no other way than by faith alone. We began this afternoon with the question, how does it, how does it help you to believe all this? In the older edition, the Catechism asks the question this way, what, what does it profit you to believe all this? Do you know how rich you are? You may lose all kinds of things in this life. Houses, health, social standing, you might even lose your own life. But never this. Never the perfect satisfaction of Christ. Never the perfect righteousness of Christ. Never the perfect holiness of Christ. No thief can can come the night and steal it away. And even in your sin, you can't give it away. Because ours is the Savior who not only brings us in, but he also keeps us in. It's ours forever. Out of the courtroom and into the living room. That's what we confess here on Lord's Day 23. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who lives and intercedes for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And because we confess here in Lord's Day 23, we can be sure that while in heaven he stands, no tongue, not Satan's tongue, not someone else's tongue, not the tongue of my conscience, no tongue can bid me thence depart. It's in that confidence, beloved, that we come to the table, not as those who are still wearing the filthy garments of our sin. But as those who have been robed with the perfect righteousness and holiness of Christ, as those who have never sinned at all, as those who have been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you again this afternoon thankful for. 
the wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That even though we are sinners, and even though our conscience accuses us, the gospel says, nevertheless, that here and now you speak to us not as a despised congregation of the world, but as a beloved congregation of Christ because we're justified, because you've made us worthy to stand in the presence of the King. And so, Father, we pray that if any of us are here this afternoon racked with a guilty conscience, that you would cleanse our consciences by pointing us to Christ. For our conscience accuse us, Lord, and we are so prone to look always to ourselves, to look to the works of our own hands. But in this table, you bid us to look up to Christ, to look to his hands, to see our names there, graven upon them and written on his heart. And so, Father, we pray that you would grant us grace to come to the table in that confidence as those who are robed in the righteousness of Christ. Grant the grace to live all our lives rejoicing in this, the glorious confession of your word and of the Reformation. May we have nevertheless written on our hearts always that we would always know that what you say of us is far truer of us than what our conscience often say of us. May we come to the table, Lord, nothing in our hands to bring, but simply to the cross we cling. We ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen.